Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 483. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Man, I put me plants out and it's cold now. <laughs> yes, I've got a few little flowers that, you know, you've got to kind of harden off. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll not, I'll be okay. I'll dodge the frosts and that. Oh, it's bloody snowing. <laughs> I'm going to take all my plants in. If you're interested, have a look on Facebook. Odd times there, I'm putting photographs up of me. Oh, my garlic's looking lovely, mind you. I planted that in last October. And spinach is away there. And... I'm gonna gonna do a video as well on the YouTube about because I've uh, I went a little bit overboard with the chilies. I have about forty varieties, and I think we're talking about <laughs> fifty or sixty plants to go in this polytunnel. Oh, man, anyway, what are we talking about? Scardinals World. This is show four eight three. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have the main fiction up first. It is The Race for Arcadia by Alex Schwarzman. It was originally published in Mission Tomorrow. Alex, as you know, I mentioned a few weeks ago, did the successful Kickstarter on the Funny Objects, the UFO series as well. And number six is out there now, or is getting in preparation. It was funded. And he also helped me, what a kind lad, he helped me with my contracts, getting all that kind of been business side of things sorted out so that's coming up then at the end of the show it is the end of the month it is mr jj campanella with his science news for april 2017 that's all coming in today's show i do hope you will stick around and enjoy it so first up is the race for arcadia by alex schwarzman Originally published, like I say, in Mission Tomorrow, Alex is a writer, translator and game designer from Brooklyn, New York. Over 80 of his short stories have appeared in Nature, Galaxy's Edge, Intergalactic Medicine Show and many other magazines and anthologies. He won the 2014 WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction and was a finalist for the 2015 Cannabis Award for Excellence in Interstellar Fiction. He is the editor of Unidentified Funny Objects annual anthology series of humorous science fiction and fantasy. His collection, Explaining Cthulhu to Grandma and Other Stories, and his steampunk horror novella, H.G. Wells, Secret Agent, were both published in 2015. His website is alexfartsman.com. This story is narrated by the fine fellow, Mr. John Dodds, who is the author of The Kendrick Chronicles, 
audiobooks published by Blackstone Audio USA. The first two novels in the series, Bone Machine and Carly's Kiss, are narrated by Robin Sash, who appeared in a number of science fiction films and TV series, including Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Torchwood. The third novel, Babylon Slide, is narrated by award-winning actor John Lee, who also narrated one of the Game of Thrones novels, A Feast of Crows. John also writes science fiction, which is fantastic, and horror, and all his work, including those Kendrick Chronicles, are available on the Amazon Kindle. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Race for Arcadia by Alex Schwartzman, read by John Dodds. There's nothing new under the sun, said Anatoly. His voice carried ship broadcast across millions of kilometres of space from the command centre at Baikonur. Aboard the Yuri Gagarin, Nikolai concentrated on the exposed panel in the inner wall of the ship. He winced at the sight of the cheap Ecuadorian circuitry as he used the multimeter to hunt for the faulty transistor. Damn contractors couldn't resist cutting corners. He sighed and looked up. Anatoly's face filled the screen. Nikolai didn't mind the banter. It broke the routine. He pointed at the opposite screen which displayed the live feed from outside the ship, a vast blackness punctured by tiny pinpricks of light. Which sun? Our sun. Any sun, Anatoly shrugged. You're a cranky pedant, aren't you? Matter of opinion, said Nikolai, his gaze returning to the uncooperative panel. As I was saying, there's nothing new under the sun, Anatoly said. We won the original space race when we launched the Sputnik a hundred years ago, and we're going to win this one too. Nikolai cursed under his breath as the multimeter slipped out of his hand and slowly floated upward. He caught the wayward tool. The space race hasn't gone so well since. Americans beat us to the moon and the Chinese beat us to Mars. Those are just a pair of lifeless rocks in our backyard, said Anatoly. In the grand scheme of things, they won't matter much, not once you land in Arcadia. Nikolai continued to hunt for the faulty transistor. You're assuming this heap of junk won't fall apart around me first. Gagarin isn't luxurious, but it will get the job done, said Anatoly. I sure hope you're right, said Nikolai. I'd hate having to get out and push. Anatoly grinned. You'd push all the way to Arcadia if you had to. Russian people make do with what we've got. Back in the 1960s, American astronauts discovered that ballpoint pens didn't work right in the vacuum. So, NASA spent all this time and money to design the space pen. You know what our cosmonauts did? They used a pencil. That story is bullshit on several levels, said Nikolai. Americans used pencils too, but the shavings were a hazard in zero gravity. They could float up one's nose or even short an electrical device and start a fire. That's why the space pen was needed, and it was developed by a private company who then sold the handful to NASA at a reasonable price. He wiped a bead of sweat off his forehead. You, of all people, should know better. OK, you got me. It's a tall tale, said Anatoly, but my version makes for a much better story to tell at parties. Next time I'm at a party, I'll be sure to try it, said Nikolai. Anatoly frowned, the wind gone out of his sails. Nikolai knew he had scored another point, but this time by hitting below the belt. His handler must have felt guilty about the one-way trip, even if he tried his best to hide it. Nikolai eased off. He let Anatoly fill him in on the gossip from home, 
the latest politics and entertainment news that felt so irrelevant, so far away. It took him another 30 minutes to find the defective transistor. He grunted with satisfaction and reached for the soldering gun. Three months prior, Nikolai Petrovich Gorolenko sat brooding at his desk in a cosy but windowless office of the St. Petersburg State University Math Department. There was so much to do, he needed to type a resignation notice, to contact an attorney about a will, and, worst of all, to figure out a way to break the news to his family. There was a knock on the door. Nikolai didn't feel like speaking to anyone, but he needed a way to break out of his despondency. Come in. A stranger walked into the room. The middle-aged man was perfectly coiffed and dressed in a smart business suit. His sharp eyes seemed to take in everything without missing a single detail, and yet he had a nondescript look about him that could only be perfected in one line of work. Nikolai pegged him for an FSB operative. My condolences, Professor Gorolenko, said the stranger. Somehow he knew. Nikolai hadn't told anyone, and yet he knew. Nikolai did his best to keep calm. Who are you, and what are you talking about? The man waved an ID card in a fluid, practised motion. Vladimir Ivanovich Popov. I'm with the government. He put the card away. I'm here about your test results for this morning. The brain tumour is malignant. You've got three, four months, half a year if you're lucky. Nikolai bristled at being told this for the second time that day. At least the first time it was his doctor who had sounded genuinely sympathetic. This stranger merely stated facts, politely but without compassion. Popov pointed at the chair. May I? What do you want? Nikolai ignored his request. A dying man has little use for being polite, and little fear of authority, he thought. Popov sat anyway. I hear this is a bad way to go, very painful in the end. I'd like to offer you an alternative. Nikolai tilted his head. An alternative to dying? An alternative to dying badly, said Popov. Let's call it a stay of execution. I see, said Nikolai. I suppose you'll want my soul in return. Popov smiled. You aren't so far from the truth, Professor. Exasperated, Nikolai leaned forward. Why don't you tell me what you're offering in plain terms? Our experts have examined your brain scans and the biopsy sample, said Popov, and determined that you're a perfect fit for an experimental nanite treatment developed by the Ante Corporation. It won't cure you, but it will slow down the tumour and contain the metastasis. It can buy you two more years. Nikolai chewed his lip. Two years was such a short time, but for a drowning man it wasn't unseemly to grasp at straws. You've got my attention. There's a catch, said Popov. Of course there is. Neither the anti-corporation nor our government are known for their altruism, said Nikolai. What do you need from me? What do you know about Arcadia, said Popov. Uh Uh-huh. You mean the planet? Popov nodded. It's been all over the news. Admittedly, I've been preoccupied, but I do know it's the first Earth-like planet ever confirmed. Breathable atmosphere and everything. That's right, said Popov. The Americans discovered it in 2015. They called it Kepler-452b back then, and it was the first Earth-like exoplanet ever found. Fitting that it will become the first world humans set foot on outside of the solar system. He shifted in his chair. 
There's enormous propaganda value in getting there first. The Americans are dispatching a 12-person exploration team. India already launched the colony ship with 60-odd people in suspended animation. So quickly. The only confirmed Arcadia is habitable last month. The world's superpowers have been preparing for this moment ever since the eggheads figured out the workaround for the speed of light problem and sent out skip drones every which way. I see. So the Russian Federation is in this race too. That's right, Professor. Our plan is to send you. Nikolai stared at the government apparatchik across his desk. Why me? I'm not a scientist, so I can't explain the reasoning thoroughly, said Popov. In layman's terms, they've been going over the brain scan data from terminal patients across the country, and they liked your brain best. Nikolai scratched his chin. Like most children, he dreamed of going up into space once, but that was a lifetime ago. Forgive me, Nikolai said. This is a lot to process. There's more, said Popov. I don't want to sugarcoat this for you. It would be a one-way trip. If we succeed and you land in Arcadia, and even if the atmosphere is breathable and the water is drinkable, your odds of survival are astronomically low. If the local microbes don't get you, the hunger likely will. If you're lucky, you might last long enough for the Americans to get there. We're trying to time the launch just right to give you that chance. Even then, the tumour might finish you before the return to Earth. Nikolai thought about it. Why can't you send enough food and water for the crew to survive? You don't get it. You are the crew. Just you. The ship's ability to accelerate to a skip velocity is inversely proportional to its mass. The Indian ship is en route, but it's huge and therefore slow. Americans have a much faster ship and they might launch before we do. In order to beat them to the punch, we must send a very light vessel. Every milligram counts, so it's you and just enough oxygen, water and food to get you to the finish line. Nikolai frowned. You weren't kidding about the stay of execution then. And it explains why your people are looking to recruit from among the terminally ill. Leaving the heroic explorer to die in Arcadia would be terrible PR otherwise. You're grasping the basics quickly, said Popov. No wonder they picked your brain. I'm not sure how a few extra months of life on a spaceship followed by death alone on an alien world is better than spending my last days with my wife and daughter, said Nikolai. Well, there's having your name live forever in history along the likes of Magellan and Bering, said Popov. And then there's an obscene amount of money you'll be paid for doing this. Nikolai hadn't saved much money on a college professor's salary. There would be medical bills, his father's retirement, his daughter's college tuition. When do you need my answer by? Tomorrow morning, at the latest, said Popov. Though, given your circumstances, I'm a little surprised you have to think about it much. I don't, not, not really, said Nikolai, but I owe it to my wife and to let her weigh in. At times, Nikolai felt his ship was falling apart around him. He didn't understand how the skip technology worked. Only a few dozen theoretical physicists on Earth could legitimately claim such wisdom but he knew that an object had to reach a certain velocity before it could puncture a momentary hole in space-time and re-emerge elsewhere. Yuri Gagarin would accelerate continuously for six months until it reached the skip point, located somewhere in the Kuiper Belt, wink out of existence only to reappear 1,400 light-years away, then spend a similar amount of time decelerating towards Arcadia. As a mathematician, Nikolai couldn't help but marvel at the amazing speed his vessel would achieve after half a year of constant acceleration. 
By now, he had already travelled further than any human in history, but he didn't feel special. He felt tired and anxious and somewhat claustrophobic in the cramped cabin that smelled like rubber and sweat. The ship's memory bank was loaded with a nearly infinite selection of music, books and films to break the monotony of the journey. Nikolai was stuck drinking recycled water and eating disgusting, nutrient-enriched slop in the name of conserving mass, but the electrons needed for data storage had no significant weight, and the ship designers could afford him this luxury. But he had little time to partake of the digital library. Instead, he put all of his hastily learned engineering knowledge to use and performed maintenance. Much of his time at Baikonur was spent learning how to service the systems inside the ship. There was no spacesuit, but then there was little that could go wrong on the outer hull. The engineer's real fear was that the internal systems might malfunction. The culture of graft was so deeply ingrained in the Russian industrial complex that even a high-profile project like this was afflicted. It wouldn't do to deliver a corpse to Arcadia. Pre-flight, they spent nearly ten hours a day teaching Nikolai how to repair the recycling systems, solder the circuit boards and improvise solutions to an array of worst-case scenarios with the materials available on board. One of the American-educated engineers kept referring to these techniques as MacGyvering, but Nikolai didn't know the reference. En route, Nikolai was forced to deal with cheap circuit boards, subpar, off-brand equipment and software subroutines that were at least two generations behind the times. He had one thing going for him, the ability to remain in contact with Baikonur. The broadcast signal had no mass and was able to skip almost immediately. Mission control was only a few seconds delay away, able to offer advice and support. While all the fires he had put out so far were figurative, Nikolai eyed the tiny Bulgarian-made extinguisher with suspicion. Nikolai waited until their four-year-old daughter was asleep. Pretending that everything was normal, that it was just another weeknight, was incredibly difficult. He was emotionally and physically exhausted, and his wife Tamara could sense that something was wrong, but she too kept up the pretense of normality until their little Olga was tucked into bed. As the sun set over St. Petersburg, colouring the skyline in bronze hues, Nikolai told his wife about his diagnosis and everything that had happened since. Tamara listened without interrupting, even as she clutched a couch pillow, a mascara-tinged tear rolling down her cheek. When he finally unburdened, having told her the facts and having run out of assurances and platitudes, the two of them stared out of the window and shared what was left of the sunset in silence. It was only after the sun had disappeared completely in the west that she finally spoke. Why you? Something was very wrong. At first it was just a feeling, a sensation in the back of Nikolai's mind. It seemed that his subconscious had figured out something important, but wasn't prepared to communicate what it was. Nikolai chalked it up to paranoia. Anyone stuck on a one-way trip out of the solar system in a tin can could be forgiven for having uneasy thoughts. But the feeling persisted, almost bubbling up to the surface until, eventually, the concern bled from his lizard brain and into the conscious mind. Nikolai pulled up the various sets of relevant data on his screen and began crunching numbers. After his wife had finally gone to bed, Nikolai stayed up making a list of people he needed to say goodbye to. He kept adding and crossing out names on a sheet of graph paper until he crumpled up the page and tossed it into a trash bin. Farewells would be painful. He didn't want to do it. 
Life had already dealt him a bad hand, and he felt justified in skipping whatever unpleasant business he could avoid. In the morning, he called Popov and accepted the deal, requesting that his involvement be kept a secret for as long as possible. He had little enough time to spend with his family and didn't want to waste it being hounded by reporters. Then he went to see the only other person who needed to know the truth. Peter Ivanovich Gorolenko had recently moved into an assisted living facility on the edge of town. It was nice enough, as retirement homes went. Nikolai was relieved that, with the money his family would receive, they'd no longer have to worry about being able to afford father's stay here. Like Tamara, Petr listened to his son's tale without interrupting. He sighed deeply when Nikolai was finished. It is a great tragedy for a parent to outlive his child. I have little time, Dad, and a chance to do something meaningful with what's left. His father straightened his back with great effort, claiming an entire planet for Mother Russia is no small thing. Well, it isn't exactly like that, said Nikolai. Arcadia isn't like some tropical island in the age of colonialism. Planting the flag won't claim it as ours. The government wants to land a man there, first purely for propaganda. I see, said Peter. The oligarchs in charge are desperate to show that Russia is still a world power, and they're willing to sacrifice your life to do it. I'm dying regardless, said Nikolai. They have the means to prolong your life, and they're withholding treatment unless you volunteer for a suicide mission. Doesn't that bother you? Nikolai looked around the sparse, depressing room where his father would live out his remaining years. Was his own fate really worse than that? Of course it bothers me, he said. Dying bothers me. Having Olga grow up without a father bothers me. But so what? It's not like I have a better option. Your great-grandfather was conscripted into the army on the day the Great Patriotic War began, said Petter. Stalin had murdered most of his competent generals by then and was utterly unprepared for the German invasion. He needed time to regroup and to mount the real <coughs> defence, so <coughs> he ordered tens of <coughs> thousands of young men with no training and no weapons <coughs> into the front lines. Petter's words dissolved into a coughing fit. He cleared his throat and continued in a raspy voice. <clears throat> Grandpa's platoon of 40 men was given a total of three rifles to fight with. They were told to kill the Germans and capture their weapons and sent to the front lines. A squad of NKVD, the secret police, was positioned a kilometre or so behind them. These men were well armed and had orders to shoot anyone who tried to turn back. Petter paused again, the monologue visibly taking a lot out of him. He took several deep breaths and pressed on. Grandpa was very lucky. He was wounded in the first engagement, and by the time he got out of the hospital, his platoon was long gone, but he was assigned to another division, one with weapons, and fought all the way to Berlin in forty-five. You've told this story more than a few times, said Nikolai. My point is, our government has a long-standing tradition of solving problems by throwing whoever they have to into the meat grinder, said Petter. A smile stretched across his wrinkled face. But also, to reiterate, that dumb luck runs deep in our family. Perhaps you can beat the odds and last long enough to hitch a ride home on the American ship. So, if you don't mind, I won't mourn for you just yet. Nikolai hugged his father. I'll try, Dad. I'll try my best. Nikolai and his family relocated to Baikonur, the desert town in Kazakhstan that housed the world's oldest spaceport. 
The dry heat of the Kazakh steppe was difficult for the Gorolenkos to tolerate and seemed to contribute to Nikolai's rapidly worsening headaches. But it was a moot point. He spent almost all of his time in the vast air-conditioned labs of the Roscosmos, the Russian Federal Space Agency. He was given crash courses in astronomy by the scientists, in equipment maintenance and repair by the engineers, and in public speaking by the PR flacks. Some of the lessons felt surreal to him, a sole student surrounded by a cadre of overeager teachers. The plan was to unveil the mission at the last possible moment, lest the Americans or the Chinese launch a competing one-man ship powered with their superior technologies and snatch the accomplishment away from the motherland. As far as the world knew, the Americans would get to Arcadia first. The Chinese had dominated space exploration for much of the 21st century. It was the People's Republic of China's skip drone which had explored Arcadia in the first place. Unfortunately for them, China was undergoing a period of political upheaval not dissimilar to Russia's perestroika in the 1990s. The government lacked the funds and the willpower to support an interstellar project. The enormous Indian ship was already en route and would take over five years to reach the skip point. They wouldn't be the first on the scene, but they would be the first to succeed, or fail, at establishing a permanent colony. The Americans launched the Neil Armstrong with all the pomp and pageantry that was expected of them, and it was scheduled to reach Arcadia in a little over a year. The plan was for the Russians to launch the Yuri Gagarin on the same day and steal the American's thunder. Despite its inferior propulsion, the Gagarin's much lower mass would allow the Russian ship to beat their competitors to Arcadia by up to several months. But by the time the Armstrong had launched from Cape Canaveral, Nikolai hadn't even seen his ship. The Gagarin was being constructed elsewhere, a joint effort between the Russian government, the anti-corporation and a number of smaller domestic firms sufficiently favoured by the current administration to be awarded the lucrative contracts. Another month had passed, Nikolai's headaches continued to worsen and, despite the Baikonur doctor's assurances to the contrary, he suspected that the nanite treatments might not be working. At first, he was perfectly content to miss the launch date. The delay meant more time to spend with his family. But then he realised that he actually wanted to go, while Olga was blissfully unaware of what was happening in the way only a young child could be, the situation was taking a noticeable toll on Tamara. She had a hard time coping with the prolonged farewell, and even though she did her best to hide it and stand by her husband, Nikolai hated being the cause of her anguish. At some point over the course of this extra month on the ground, Nikolai stopped thinking of the impending launch as a death sentence and began looking forward to his final adventure. He didn't discuss these new feelings with Tamara, whom he felt would not understand, but he wrote about them at length in letters he penned for his daughter, to be given to her when she turned 16. The letters became a sort of diary for Nikolai, an outlet for his anxiety, a catharsis. The word that the ship was finally on its way to Baikonur came at the last possible moment. This is good news, Nikolai told Tamara during their last dinner together. By mutual agreement, they decided not to speak again after the ship had launched. Nikolai wasn't happy about this, but he was willing to let go for Tamara's sake. I'm only going to beat the Americans by a week or so. She took his hand into hers, and her lower lip trembled. I can make the food and water last that long, he said. The Americans will take me in. It would make them look really bad otherwise. There was pain and doubt in the way Tamara looked at him, and only the briefest glimmer of hope. Later that evening, he tucked Olga into bed for the last time. Daddy is going away on a business trip for a while, he said, struggling to keep his voice even. 
Olga smiled at him, her eyelids heavy. Will you come back soon? I'll try my best, said Nikolai. Bring me something nice. She shut her eyes. She shut her eyes. In the morning, they told him he would sleep through the first two days of his trip. We must lighten the load as much as possible, he was told, to make up somewhat for the delays. We'll give you a shot to keep you asleep for as long as it's medically reasonable. It will conserve air, food and water. By the time he woke up, the earth was a pale blue dot rapidly diminishing in the distance. At first, Nikolai chose not to share his concerns with Anatoly. If he was wrong, he would sound like a paranoid lunatic. If he was right, Nikolai tried very hard not to dwell on the implications. He pulled up the volumes on astronomy and physics from the ship's database, and he checked the data from the ship's sensors against the star charts, willing for the results to make sense. He cut down the amount of time spent on maintaining life support systems and the amount of time he slept. He checked the equations again and again, but the numbers never added up. By then he was getting desperate. He would have to bring his concerns up with Baikonur. Do you want to hear a joke? said Anatoly by way of greeting next time he called. Sure, Nikolai wasn't in the laughing mood, but he let the comm specialist talk. When the Americans landed on the moon, President Brezhnev's aides broke the bad news to the boss, said Anatoly. Brezhnev wasn't at all happy. We can let the capitalists win the space race, he said. I hereby order our intrepid cosmonauts to immediately launch an expedition and land on the sun. But comrade Brezhnev, said the aides, it's impossible to land on the sun. The sun is extremely hot. Nonsense, said Brezhnev. Just tell them to go at night. Nikolai stared at the screen, silent. Heard that one, eh? Anatoly grinned. That joke is so old, its beard has grown a beard. It seemed appropriate for the occasion, is all. What's really going on, Anatoly? Nikolai, blur- Nikolai blurted out the words before he could change his mind. The face on the screen stared, eyes widening in surprise. What do you mean? I calculated the trajectory and the ship isn't where it should be, said Nikolai. It's accelerating much faster than it possibly could. You must have made a mistake, said Anatoly a little too quickly and glanced downward. After so many rounds of verbal sparring, Nikolai looked into the face of the man on the screen and was certain he was hiding something. I taught mathematics at one of Russia's top universities, said Nikolai. My calculations are accurate. A ship the size of Yuri Gagarin can't possibly accelerate at this rate. And don't feed me a line about secret technologies. I learned enough about propulsion at Baikonur to understand the basics of skip travel. Anatoly's visage, normally cheerful and full of life, was grim. He sighed deeply and slouched in his chair, his shoulders slumping visibly. Wait, please, he finally said, and cut the connection. Nikolai felt trapped and powerless. Cut off from his family, his only lifeline, a man he barely knew, a man who had apparently been lying to him this entire time. But lying about what? Was this a sick experiment? Did he leave Earth at all? Or was he in some bunker in Kazakhstan, serving as a guinea pig for Roscosmos shrinks? He felt claustrophobic, the walls of the ship closing in, his head spun and his stomach churned. Was this a panic attack? Nikolai had never experienced one before. The salvation from certain death, the chance at fame, the money. Why would this be offered to him, of all people? How could he be so stupid? This was a fantasy born of a cancerous mass pushing against his brain tissue. The screen flickered back to life 20 minutes later, but to Nikolai it felt like eternity. I was hoping we wouldn't have to have this conversation for a few months, said Anatoly. Sometime after the skip, Nikolai stared at his handler. 
Is there a skip? There is a skip, and the ship is right on schedule, accelerating exactly as it should be. Nikolai waited. You're right, though. The ship is much lighter and faster than you were initially led to believe. Nikolai seethed. What the hell does that mean, Anatoly? There were delays and complications, said the comm specialist. We couldn't get the life support equipment to work right. Couldn't get the ship's mass reduced to an acceptable level. We had hoped the Americans would have similar troubles, but they launched on time and we were out of options. In order to beat them to Arcadia, we had to send a ship that was barely larger than a skip drone, nothing large enough to transport a living, breathing human. The best we could do was send your mind. Nikolai gaped at the screen. Anti-corporation has been developing this technology for a decade, said Anatoly. We had to euthanize your body and upload your thought patterns into the computer. Your digital self resides in the Yuri Gagarin's memory bank. A sophisticated computer program is simulating your environment, but in fact, there is no air or food, nor the need for such. Nikolai stared at his hands, brushed his fingers against the stubble on his chin, and then touched the control console of the ship, felt the slight vibration of the engine. All this feels real enough to me. Anatoly entered a command into his own computer, and the world around Nikolai went blank. He could no longer feel his own body, could not breathe or move, or see anything around him. It was extremely disorienting. Nikolai thought this was how purgatory must feel. The physical world returned. Sorry about the discomfort, said Anatoly. I had to show you I was telling the truth. This is what it's like without any interface at all. Nikolai felt his heart thumping fast, his face flushed with anger. How could those things be fake? You, he stammered, you, you killed me. Your body was already dying, said Anatoly. The nanites could only hold off the tumour for so long. He offered a weak smile. Think of the advantages. You will last as long as it takes for the Americans to bring you back home. Advantages, shouted Nikolai. You were always going to kill me, weren't you? All in the name of some propaganda stunt. No, said Anatoly. Sure, we were prepared for this. You were selected because your brain activity and personality were deemed most likely to be digitised successfully and the nanites had been mapping your brain patterns from the beginning. But we would have vastly preferred the alternative. Anatoly leaned forward and lowered his voice, sounding almost conspiratorial. I know you're angry and confused now, but think about it. Really think about it. You're going to make history. Twice. You will not only be the first intelligent being from Earth to land in Arcadia, but you'll be the first successfully digitised human too. You are monsters, whispered Nikolai. You will get to watch your daughter grow up, said Anatoly. Nikolai had no counter to that. He pondered life as a ghost in the machine. Why did you lie, he asked. Why the ruse? You could have gotten a volunteer. Hell, I might have volunteered if you laid the options out for me. This truly was the backup option, said Anatoly. But also we've had difficulties with this process before. Several previous attempts at maintaining a digital intelligence have failed. Nikolai gritted his non-existent teeth. The emotional roller coaster ride wasn't over yet. You're doing fine, Anatoly added. I'm only telling you this to explain our actions. All cards on the table this time, I promise. What sort of difficulties? asked Nikolai. The transfer always worked, but the minds couldn't adjust to the virtual existence. They went mad within days, but they weren't as good a match as you. Nikolai shuddered. Through trial and error, we figured out the most efficient approach was to stimulate your senses in a virtual reality environment and keep the truth from you until your program has stabilised. Nikolai stared at Anatoly, who raised his palms. I know it was a long shot and a gamble. We 
really did run out of time. It was this or scrap the programme. You're doing great, though. We created a believable and challenging simulation for you, making you work hard to fix things, challenging your mind to remain sharp and active. Anatoly began to gesture with his hands, as he was prone to doing when he got excited about the topic of conversation. Every anecdote, every little story I told you were carefully selected by our top psychiatrists to steer you toward eventually accepting your new reality. All this just to land a computer program on Arcadia, said Nikolai. Two dozen skip drones already landed there, getting air and water and soil samples. Why would anyone care? It's not the same. You're still a person, a rational human being, capable of emotion and thought. A Russian. Your achievement will matter. Sure, there will be a few detractors. The Americans will argue like hell that a digital person doesn't count. But we'll sell it to the rest of the world if we have to shove it down their throats. I'm capable of emotion, said Nikolai. Right now, that emotion is anger. Right now, I'm contemplating whether I should take part in your publicity stunt at all. Maybe I'll tell the world about what you people have done to me instead. Or maybe I'll say nothing at all, play dead and leave your glorious first place finish devoid of meaning. How is that for a rational human being? Nikolai cut the connection. Nikolai struggled to come to terms with what he was. Even now, the virtual reality he inhabited seemed real to him. He felt hungry and tired and hurt when he tentatively bit his cheek. He was capable of feeling anger towards the government and love toward his daughter. Did the lack of a physical body make him any less human than a handicapped person, a quadriplegic, unable to control his limbs? He was never an ardent patriot, and now he was more disillusioned in his country than ever. But would carrying out his threat gain him anything beyond a fleeting moment of satisfaction? And if he was to comply, if he was to return to Earth in a few years, would Tamara come to terms with the new him, would Olga? He had no answers, only an ever-growing list of uncertainties. To their credit, Anatoly and his superiors gave him an entire day to think things through before re-establishing the connection. Anatoly looked like he hadn't slept, was buzzed on caffeine, still wearing the same shirt from the day before. What we did to you was crap, he said without preamble, but I won't apologise for it. Exceptional deeds aren't accomplished through kindness. It's not just Russia, either. All of human history is one tale after another of achieving greatness by ruthlessly building upon a foundation comprised of the bones of the innocent. How many slave labourers died to erect the pyramids? The gleaming New York skyscrapers are inseparable from the legacy of smallpox-infested blankets being given to unsuspecting natives. You have already paid the price for humanity's next great accomplishment. Why refuse to reap the benefits? Nikolai closed his eyes and pictured Olga's face. She may or may not accept the virtual brain in a jar as her father. He thought of all the doors the success could open for her. I'll, I'll do it, said Nikolai evenly. You can tone down the rhetoric. Anatoly straightened visibly, as though a heavy burden was lifted from his shoulders. There are conditions, said Nikolai. What do you need? One, I want to talk to my wife. I want her handling things on that end, from now on, because I don't quite know how to tell the real from the virtual, and I don't trust any of you. Nikolai held up two fingers. Two, when I get back, you hand the computer or the data bank or whatever my consciousness is stored in over to her for much the same reason. Anatoly nodded. Done. I still hate the callous, cynical lot of you, but I'll make the best out of this situation and find solace in the fact that my name will be remembered long after all your gravestones are dust. Speaking of that legacy, we'll need to work on my speech. 
something tells me one small step isn't going to go over well in my case. We'll have speechwriters float some ideas, said Anatoly. Finally, finally, have your programmers work on some adjustments to my gilded cage. If I'm to eat make-believe food, making it taste this bad is needlessly cruel. Tonight, I'd like a thick slab of virtual steak, medium well. Nikolai settled in for the long journey. There would be time enough to sort out his feelings and to learn how to live as this new kind of being. He knew one thing for sure. Like his great-grandfather, he would persevere and return home. Yuri Gagarin, the tiny ship carrying the future hero of humanity, accelerated toward the skip point. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Alex. Alex, uh, lovely. Once again, to have you back on the show, sir. Tuck your feet under the chair there. Nice to have a comfortable, comfortable armchair. Thank you very much. And John. <laughs> what can I say, man? What can I say? Thank you, John. John, John subscribed. I just want to tell you, just subscribed my email list. And I don't know how it was going, but something was going wrong. And John was just getting bombarded with. I'd put out an email on the list, but I don't know if, if it was me or if it was John, but there was, he was just getting hammered by my email. Anyway, John, still nice to have you on board, sir. Thank you so much. Hope you're well. So, next up is Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news for April 2017. JJ, sir. Greetings and ululectic morphodontations, my grammar metric listeners. And welcome to this April 2017 Science News Update. I'm your host for this paradoubtedly peculiar science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Welcome, everyone. Let's get some sofa business out of the way first. As you may or may not know, in about 20 weeks or so, Starship Sofa will be celebrating its 500th episode. Tony Smith, founder and chief bottle washer for the operation, has invited me to speak live for that particular episode. This is not the first time that Tony has honored me with such a request, and I have puzzled him in the past by telling him I'm uncomfortable speaking under live conditions like that. Tony responded logically that I speak live to large auditoriums of students for a living, so I should not have a problem with such a presentation. Then Tony is correct but that does not preclude my terror for being recorded live. No, I do not even understand my own psychology. I can't explain it. I spoke to my lovely wife about my dilemma, and she said that I really had an obligation speaking at the 500th episode, since I've been with this thing from the very beginning, and still have bragging rights to the Hugo Award we won a few years back. I have hemmed and hawed about this for the last few days, Finally, this is my public response to Tony, all right? As long as my schedule does not preclude doing the show or no emergency arises suddenly, I do agree to participate in the live show for the 500th celebration. Although let it be on your head to ignore the ums and the ohs and the ahs and the various throat clearings that my nervousness may engender, I can hear the guffawing now in podcast land. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Let's get to serious business. Here's an article that I came across in the journal The Scientist. I don't usually do this, but I am actually going to read the article in full. 
because it's one of the funniest things I've ever come across, at least in a science journal. You may remember that I have mentioned predatory journals from time to time. These are journals that try to take advantage of scientific authors. I constantly get email from these folks trying to get me to write papers way outside my specialty, usually having something to do with cardiology or epidemiology or some such nonsense. These journals have almost no review process, and then they ask authors for massive payments to publish work in their useless, unqualified journals. Well, Dr. John H. McCool of Houston, Texas, yes, that is his real name, decided to do something about the bane of fake journals. McCool is the founder and senior scientific editor of Precision Scientific Editing, which aids authors in writing papers for journals. He decided to troll the dirty rats in the most academic way possible. Here's the text of his article. I'm not a physician, much less a urologist, but I am an editor of scientific writing who has a strong antipathy for predatory journals. I'm also a Seinfeld fanatic. So I decided to troll this publication, the MedCrave Group's Urology and Nephrology Open Access Journal, to see whether they would agree to publish a totally made-up, Seinfeld-themed case report about a man who develops uromycetitis poisoning. This was inspired by the classic 1991 episode, The Parking Garage, in which Jerry Seinfeld can't find his car in a mall lot and has to urinate, and does so against a garage wall, and is caught by a security guard, and tries to get out of a citation by claiming that he suffers from a condition called uromycetosis. Seinfeld argued that due to his illness, he would die if he doesn't relieve himself whenever he needs to. I went all out. I wrote my report as Dr. Martin Van Nostrum, the physician alter ego of another Seinfeld character, and listed more show-inspired names as bogus co-authors. I made an email account for Dr. Van Nostrum and created a false institution where the authors worked, the Arthur Vandelay Urological Research Institute. In the acknowledgement section of my report, I thanked phony physicians, including Tor Ekman, the bizarre holistic healer from The Heart Attack, giving him a Doctor of Holistic Medicine, HMD, degree, so basically, I wrote the manuscript in a style as close to a real case report as I could, except that it was 100% fake. To my surprise, a representative at the Urology Journal wrote to say that my manuscript was sent out for peer review. Three days later, it was conditionally accepted. I was asked to make minor revisions, including trimming the abstract and including the phony patient's lab results, and pay a nominal $799 fee plus tax. Editors note, it usually takes a minimum of a month for manuscripts to get reviewed. I have had papers in initial review for up to five months. Back to the story. Continuing to dupe the publication, I did all that was asked, except remit payment. And on March 31st, my report was published on the journal's website. I have no intention of paying the requested fee. A simple Google search for Euromycetosis, or Martin Van Nostrum, returns thousands of references to Seinfeld. Checking just one of the papers I included in the manuscript's reference section, the editors or reviewers could easily have determined that it was fabricated. 
Why did the journal publish a report so easily identifiable as fake? I'll leave that one to the publication to explain. Why, you might ask, did I take this stunt as far as I did? For the last year, I've been on a personal crusade against fake scientific journals, and I have written several articles on the topic. In 2016, I was invited to submit a paper to the Journal of Nanomedicine Research, also published by MedCrave. I posted an article on LinkedIn about this, but it was not widely read, nor effective at exposing the journal as dubious. So when the Urology Journal came calling, I thought a more extreme trolling operation might be more effective. I wrote the fictitious case report over a weekend. My short-term goal is to expose MedCrave as a publisher that will print fiction for a price. My long-term goal, an ambitious one I know, is to stop the production of predatory journals altogether. Okay, let's go from the amazing to the absurd with the President of the United States. I predicted this last month, but it has come to pass. As anticipated, President Trump's budget proposal includes substantial cuts at federal research agencies, including the U.S. National Institutes of Health, NIH, and the Environmental Protection Agency. If approved by Congress, the budget would enact cuts of $5.8 billion at NIH, nearly 19% of the agency's current budget, and more than $2.6 billion from the EPA, which is around 31% of that agency's current allotment. Okay, mind you, I am a supporter of smaller government, but I feel like cutting NIH's budget is like, well, cutting your nose off to spite your face. It's going to do nothing but hurt you in the long run, and it is just plain stupid. Dr. Benjamin Korb, Director of Public Affairs at the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, publicly made the following statement about the president's budget. Quote, a $6 billion cut to NIH is unacceptable to the scientific community and should be unacceptable to the American public as well. President Donald Trump's fiscal year 2018 spending plan erases years' worth of bipartisan support for the NIH and the American Biomedical Research Enterprise, which has long been the global leader for biomedical innovation. Cuts this deep threaten America's ability to remain a leader in medicine, unquote. I worry less about being a leader in world health research than I do about the long-term worldwide problems that may arise from the NIH and the CDC cutting back on their research work. It's kind of chilling. I guess even the president realized that the CDC is important because the Washington Post reports that his budget does include a $500 million block grant to support states' public health responses. It's not entirely clear, but this funding may be meant to replace the CDC's existing Prevention and Public Health Fund, which would disappear if Obamacare was ever completely abolished. If the loss of public health protection from the CDC depresses you, well, here's an antidote, maybe. Dr. Alban Gautier, researcher at the UVA School of Medicine, just published a paper that suggests your emotional well-being might be modified by eating yogurt, which in turn would affect your microbiome, which might pull you out of your depression. The paper was published in Scientific Reports, and it's entitled 
Microbiota alteration is associated with the development of stress-induced despair behavior. Godier says, quote, Depression is one of the most common mental health conditions in the United States, with up to 7% of people experiencing a major depressive episode. It's a huge problem, and the treatments are not very good because they come with huge side effects, unquote. While many scientists have long held that the gut microbiome has a major influence on many body systems, including the brain, it has only been in recent years that many of the underlying molecular mechanisms have been explained. In that vein, Godier set out to see if they could find a concrete link between, well, depression and gut health. Godier and his team looked at the composition of the gut microbiome before and after mice were subjected to stress. And he found that the major change was the loss of lactobacillus. With the loss of the bacterial genus came the onset of depression symptoms. Here's the amazing result. If you feed the mice lactobacillus with their food, they returned to almost normal and no longer appeared to be depressed. Godier wanted to determine the mechanism by which lactobacillus influences depression. He found that the amount of lactobacillus in the gut affects the level of a metabolite in the blood called kynurinine. This particular metabolite has been shown to drive depression. When lactobacillus was diminished in the gut, the levels of kynurinine increased, presumably causing the depression symptoms to set in. While Godier and his team are excited about their findings, they urge caution about overinterpretation of the results. Remember that a depressed mouse is not a depressed human. And how exactly do you know if the mouse is truly and actually depressed? Can a mouse actually be in despair? Mice have no way to communicate that they are feeling depressed. Unfortunately, for good or bad, those symptoms are widely accepted as the best available model, though, for looking at depression in creatures other than humans. Yet, based on their findings, the investigators are looking to begin studying the effect in people as soon as possible. The researchers intend to examine the effects of lactobacillus on depression in patients with multiple sclerosis, a group in which the disorder is common. And additionally, Godier and his team are continuing to try to better understand the role of kynurinine in depression onset and within the gut microbiota. All right, let's try a topic which is less depressing. How about water bears? The world knows no toughness like that of the water bear. This microscopic critter can survive boiling water, some of the lowest temperatures in the universe, and blasts of radiation that would kill a human. So what makes these little buggers so tough? Well, we think we now know. In a paper out last month in the journal Molecular Cell, Dr. Thomas C. Boothby of the University of North Carolina and his colleagues claim that they have found an exclusively tardigradian protein that the water bear produces, forming it into a glass bead. It's in this state that the water bear can pull off such extreme feats of survival, which might be very convenient for human medicine one day. Boothby looked closely at the genes that turned on as water bears dried out in hopes of figuring out which genes were responsible for its survival. At the top of the list were a series of switched-on genes which are called intrinsically disordered proteins. 
Intrinsically disordered proteins are those amino acid chains that don't have a nice, neat 3D structure like most other proteins. So they act in a strange and kind of loose manner without any defined structure. Boothby has pinpointed the genes that make the water bear's life-saving proteins. He says, quote, We went on to show that if you reduce expression of these genes in tardigrades, they can no longer survive desiccation very well. If you take those genes and put them into organisms like bacteria and yeast, which normally don't have them, they actually become much more desiccation tolerant, unquote. The water bear's secret ingredient can make other organisms up to a hundred times hardier to desiccation. The protective mechanism of these intrinsically disordered proteins looks like something out of Star Wars. You remember carbonite? That's the material that Han Solo was frozen into by Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back. Well, the protective protein found by Boothby turns the water bear into a frozen glass figurine in a process known as vitrification, a la Han Solo and carbonite. Normally, desiccation crystallizes living cells, shredding up proteins and DNA in the process. But with the gentler, smoother process of vitrification, the water bear can ride out the desiccation, only to reanimate once it hits water up to 30 years later. Do I hear gasps out there? 30 years? Yes, 30 years. Could we have found a protein that may allow us to travel to the outer planets of the solar system, or even the stars? Is hypersleep possible that would suspend all life until de-vitrification? Well, apparently it is for the water bear, but we need to have lots more understanding of this protein to use it anywhere else. However, Boothby is already suggesting more prosaic uses for the water bear protein. Vaccines, for example, are extremely fragile, requiring refrigeration as doctors ship them around the world. Refrigeration, of course, costs a lot of money and means the vaccines are easily degraded if they're no longer refrigerated. Boothby says, quote, One potential application would be to use these tardigrade proteins to stabilize vaccines or pharmaceuticals in a dry state that you can keep at room temperature and not have to worry about refrigeration during transport and storage. Unquote. Onward and upward, from the bizarre to the more bizarre. Doctors Teresa Woodruff and Jeffrey Borenstein at Northwestern University have invented something that falls into the 1984-slash-Brave New World creepy part of the spectrum. They've produced an organ-on-a-chip model of the female reproductive system that can mimic the human menstrual cycle. Woodruff and Borenstein named this thing Evatar and told the world about it in the March 28th issue of the journal Nature Communications. Evatar is a chip about the size of a human hand that contains five mini-organs, a uterus, a vagina, liver, ovaries, and fallopian tubes. All the tissues come from humans, except the ovaries, which were taken from mice, since they're rarely removed from humans. Each organ sits in its own compartment, which is linked to the others through minuscule tubes that carry blood-like liquid and hormones. To mimic the 28-day menstrual cycle on the chip, the 
team first added follicle-stimulating hormone, then luteinizing hormone 14 days later. This successfully stimulated the ovaries to produce estrogen and progesterone and release an egg. Woodruff says, quote, this is the first time we've been able to model the entire reproductive hormone profile. You might be able to look at two of these tissues together in culture, but all five together for a month? Well, that's unheard of, unquote. The team hopes to use Evitar to both better understand the human reproductive system and to test new drugs. Borenstein asks and answers the rhetorical question, quote, could it potentially be better than an animal model? Yes, because you're using human cells, unquote. Woodruff and Borenstein now aim to build personalized evitars using patient-derived stem cells. The team is also working on a male version of the reproductive system on a chip called Adatar, which they hope to release later this year. Okay, let's pull back from the bazaar for a moment to the more practical side of life. So far, I have been follically blessed. Well, sort of. My hair went prematurely gray about ten years ago, but I blame that mainly on my children. However, I have so far kept a pretty full head of hair. Knock on wood. If I live long enough to hit 80, I'm less likely to have much hair on my head, statistically. Male pattern baldness affects about 80% of men by the age of 80. Anyway, baldness can pose psychosocial problems and even indicate dangerous conditions like prostate cancer. Although researchers have traced male pattern baldness to broad genetic sources, they have only found a handful of genes responsible for this complex trait so far due to, well, small sample sizes. Now, in the largest genomic study of baldness to date, researchers led by Dr. Ricardo Marioni at the University of Edinburgh have pinpointed over 200 genetic regions associated with this common condition. The paper was published last month in PLOS Genetics. Marioni says, quote, The biggest genetic effect we saw came from the X chromosome, which men inherit from their mothers. However, there are also many genes linked to hair loss that come from the other chromosomes. It's therefore difficult to blame one parent in particular. Unquote. That's what I always tell my genetics classes. Marioni's team split data from 52,000 male participants in the UK Biobank into a discovery sample of 40,000 and a target sample of 12,000 for their genome-wide association study. They then developed a formula to predict a man's chance of baldness based on certain markers, differentiating those with severe hair loss from those with no loss. Because the 287 identified genetic regions mostly contribute to hair structure and growth, they could suggest drug targets for treating hair loss. Future studies that collect the age of hair loss onset may also enable researchers to predict the age at which a man becomes bald. Marioni finishes with, quote, the prediction aspect of our paper might be useful to stratify men into high-low risk groups to see, for example, who would benefit most from clinical trials of new potential treatments, unquote. Now, if you want to live a long time, the next story may interest you. 
although you may be bald if you live that long, but whatever. Caffeine and tea and coffee may help you to live longer by reducing inflammation in your tissues. In a study published in the journal Nature Medicine, Dr. David Furman of Stanford University reports a genetic mechanism responsible for triggering chronic inflammation and the subsequent development of age-related cardiovascular disease. The findings also highlight the role of caffeine consumption in helping to disrupt this inflammatory gene activity in some older adults. Furman states, quote, Chronic inflammation is a common denominator for almost all diseases of aging, such as hypertension, cancer, and many neurological disorders. Here, we found that some gene networks that normally participate in response to infections are also those that mediate chronic inflammation during aging. We also learned that caffeine plays an important role here, and the effect can be pretty dramatic, unquote. During an eight-year study, Furman and his team analyzed survey data, blood samples, and medical histories from 100 human participants, a group of adults between the ages of 20 and 30, and another group of adults over 60 in age. By comparing gene expression data between the two groups, Furman's team identified two highly active gene networks in the older age group linked to the production of a powerful inflammatory protein called IL-1 beta. Of the older age group, nearly half demonstrated high levels of IL-1 beta, as well as high levels of nucleic acid metabolites found to boost inflammatory gene activity and production of IL-1 beta. The team also observed that the metabolites caused systemic inflammation and high blood pressure when injected into mice. Furman explains that, quote, most of the participants with high activity in these inflammatory gene networks were also hypertensive or suffering from arterial stiffness. Using metabolomic data, we found that one of the metabolites that was high in the inflamed participants was adenine. In our in vitro studies, caffeine was a big adenine antagonist. So we asked what their caffeine intake was like, unquote. Furman's lab further incubated immune cells with the metabolites along with caffeine compounds, and they found that the caffeine blocked the inflammatory effects of the metabolites in the cells. They found that the effect was pretty big, too. They considered the effect of coffee in milligrams per week, and apparently the effect is linear and surprisingly high for those having four to five cups of coffee a day. Furman is expanding the team study to a thousand participants to explore inflammatory networks that explain other diseases beyond cardiovascular disorders. For now, however, Furman cautions that increasing coffee intake does not by any means guarantee a long life. He says, quote, human biology is complicated, and there are a zillion different pathways that can trigger inflammation. Drinking coffee may help in some cases, but generally things are much more complicated than that, unquote. And now for something completely different. Mars! The Martian atmosphere definitely had more gas in the past. How do we know this? Dr. Bruce Tchaikovsky of the University of Colorado and his colleagues have measured and compared the abundances of two isotopes of argon at different altitudes in the Martian atmosphere, 
and they published their results in Science in the last couple of weeks. Data analyzed from NASA's MAVEN spacecraft by Yakovsky indicated that the red planet has lost most of the gas that ever existed in its atmosphere. The results published in the March 31st journal Science are the first to quantify how much gas has been lost with time, and they offer clues to how Mars went from a warm, wet place to a cold, dry one. Mars is constantly bombarded by charged particles streaming from the sun. Without a protective magnetic field to deflect the solar wind, the planet loses about 100 grams of its now very thin atmosphere every second. To determine how much atmosphere has been lost during the planet's lifetime, Tchaikovsky employed the abundances of those isotopes of argon and estimates that about two-thirds of all of Mars's argon gas has been ejected into space. Extrapolating from the argon data, Tchaikovsky has also determined that the majority of carbon dioxide that the Martian atmosphere ever had was also kicked into space by the solar wind. The paper suggests that a thicker atmosphere filled with carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases could have insulated Mars early on and kept it warm enough for liquid water and maybe even life. Losing an extreme amount of gas, as the results suggest, may explain how the planet morphed from that lush and wet system to the barren and icy one that we know of now. All right, let's finish this evening with some actual good news, for those of us in the U.S. at least. We can certainly use some lately, can't we? On World Cancer Day, February 4th this year, the American Cancer Society released its annual Cancer Facts and Figures Report, a detailed study of population-based cancer incidence and mortality in the U.S. that teases apart trends across cancer types and demographics. Dr. Rebecca Siegel, the team leader of the report, stated in an interview, quote, We found that the cancer death rate is continuing to decline and has in fact dropped by about 25% in the past couple of decades, unquote. Using national data from 1999 to 2013 to build a mathematical model of mortality, the ACS researchers predicted that nearly 601,000 Americans will die from cancer in 2017, a daily average of about 1,650, with the most common causes being lung, colorectal, prostate, and breast cancer. However, the team also estimated that around 659,000 cancer deaths in women and about 1.4 million in men have been averted since 1991 due to declines in the death rate. The report suggests that the decreases may be the result of improving treatment regimens or reductions in behavioral risk factors. For example, rates of blood cancer and lymphoma survival have been boosted by the advent of precision medicine in recent years, and the decrease in incidence and death rate for lung cancer a disease that now has an 18% five-year survival rate, probably has smoking cessation campaigns and the overall decrease in the cigarette's popularity to think. Rates of cancer screening also play an important role in driving trends in both incidence and mortality. For example, the declines in colorectal cancer incidence 
down 3% per year from 2004 to 2013, and death rate probably reflect improvements in early detection. The chief reason? Well, the report points out the colonoscopy used in adults over the age of 50 has tripled since 2000. So polyps are detected and taken out before they have the opportunity to progress to cancer. Unfortunately, despite overall declines in cancer, not all types of cancer follow the trend, and an important purpose of the ACS report is to identify areas that need more attention. For example, this year's report highlights that some cancers, like liver cancer, are increasing. And so that's an area that needs additional research. Liver cancer incident rose by 3% per year in women and 4% per year in men from 2004 to 2013, while the death rate in both sexes climbed by almost 3% per year from 2010 to 2014. Unfortunately, there is a disparity in cancer incidence and cures if you look at the details of the data. For example, men have a 20% overall higher incidence of cancer than women, and then mortality rate is 40% higher. This gender imbalance isn't really understood at all. The disparities among different ethnicities are similarly striking. The data reveals that both cancer incidence and death rates are highest in black populations and lowest in Asian Americans. Worse, black Americans are also more likely than whites to be diagnosed with cancer once it's reached an advanced stage and have lower survival rates at each stage of the cancer progression. Siegel says, quote, the gap in the races is closing up. Around 1990, overall cancer death rate in black men was almost 50% higher than it was in white men. That rate has now dropped to only about 20% higher today. The decrease has been only slightly less dramatic in black women, falling from 20% higher in white women to 13% between 1998 and 2014. Siegel points out that there are several factors that contribute to this trend of closing the gap between the races. She says, quote, One factor includes substantial declines in smoking among black teenagers of the 1970s, and recent improvements in access to treatment. Also, from 2010 to 2015, there's been a drop by half in the proportion of black people in the U.S. who do not have health insurance coverage. That's huge, huge progress, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care, pray for the NIH, drink that coffee, eat that yogurt, keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Now we did hear at the beginning there, didn't we? Jim did see live. <laughs> Got it on. Got it on there, Jim. I love that it was like, there's always like a little bit caveat. Just, there could be an emergency though. Well, basically what it is, if it comes off, you know what I mean, this is like I'm saying, might do like a little mini sofa con where it's just us. Do you know what I mean? Basically just the Starship sofa. I'll get Amy to kind of hopefully do something along them lines. We'll maybe get a little short story wrote or read, you know, on there and get Jim as well to do a little science news. Just a little mini thing because the last, I think the last time we did one, it was too days worth you know what i mean so we'll see how it goes it's all just trying to tie in with the 
the kind of like you see the celebrations for five hundred, but they're coming quicker than, quicker than I like. You know what I mean? So at least we can see Jim Zid. <laughs> He's probably listening to this now, thinking, "Oh man, see it, man, Tony." There you go, Jim. <laughs> Jim, you're doing the whole thing. I'm away. I'm on holiday. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Jim. Lovely to have you on. So that is show 483, like you say as well, if a couple of weeks ago, always towards that 500. Jeremy was giving us little hints of who possibly he's got in mind for show 500. And if he could pull this off, yeah, oh man, unreal, to be quite honest. Oh, not that. <laughs> I've, got a bo- I've got a bet with the boogies that he cannot, to be quite honest. That's how hard this... The, oh, oh, nearly, nearly, nearly. Anyway, if get in touch with us if you want. You know, what I mean, loads, loads going on in my world. Like I say, I've got all my allotment stuff there. My tomatoes, my chilies, me. and I'm still doing this low carb, high fat diet on the burner at the moment. I'm boiling some, I'm cooking some broccoli and a boiled egg, and I'm going to mix that broccoli with an avocado with a little bit of garlic, a little bit of lime juice. <coughs> excuse me, and some olive oil. And I've got some pilchards frying in butter. Mm, There we go. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
get out there by and by. I'll get out there. 